In recent weeks, we have been considering the theme of exile. I would love for you to turn to 1 Peter um, as I just make a few introductory remarks, but we're going to be looking at 1 Peter chapter 3, which is um, on page 1767 in the Church Bibles, which you're welcome to grab one if you don't have a Bible with you. Um, just as a side note, by the way, um, it, is, it is very much worthwhile um, keeping your Bible open when we're working through um, the Scripture in this way as we do Sunday by Sunday. Um, you need to check if what I'm saying makes any sense in, front of what, in, in light of what's in front of you. Also, that's where the power lies. It's not through the speaker. It's God, God communicating his heart toward us. I want to urge you, bring your Bibles. Um, if you um, have one, if you don't, take one of the church Bibles home with you. Make it your own. You're welcome to keep it. Um, 1 Peter chapter 3, I want to read to you verses 8 to 22. the second half of this chapter. I want you to remember, of course, that when Peter opened this letter, he's writing to pockets, little communities of Christians dotted around um, a a part of what was then called Asia Minor, which is mainly uh, Turkey, but some other regions. And um, he was writing to them, and he, he opens his letter and says, to the elect exiles of the chosen refugees people who've been called out of the lives that they once lived to come and belong to the people of God and now experiencing a new identity. You're now an exile. You're now a refugee in the world. The world is not necessarily your home in the way that it was prior to you becoming a Christian. And of course, that's important for those of you who are considering faith because how else can you come to terms with the cost of following Jesus unless you really confront the reality that To be a follower of Jesus is to, in many ways, turn your back on aspects of life that you enjoyed before. That's a reality. It's also important for the many of you who are Christians because you cannot understand your life as a Christian until you come to grips with this new dynamic that you're experiencing of this, often this tension or this conflict with the world around you. And Peter's letter is largely helping Christians get to grips of what this means and deal with the specific problems that they're facing. Now, in this particular passage, which I've described as speaking about resistance and exile, I want you to think about this interface of the church and the world, the church being a minority subculture within a world which certainly then and increasingly now in our own experience was hostile to the church. And the question that the Christians were dealing with was in a sense, how do we survive? How do we survive within this environment? How do we remain faithful to Jesus? How do we have lives that are given over to him, given the daily grind of what it means to be a believer in Jesus? And Peter, speaking to that question. Let me read to you from chapter 3, verse 8. He says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. 
Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience awaited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. All the way through the letter, on account of Peter's own personal experiences and on account of what he knew was happening among the churches, there is this, this background expectation that the Christians, the churches, were going to be experiencing heat because of their faith in Jesus. And why? Well, primarily because Christians are different. Christians are different, different lifestyle, different worldview, different set of assumptions about what's important in life. And for all those reasons and many others, a Christian will experience, and in a sense, I would even go so far as to say this, they ought to experience something of the heat of a world that doesn't understand the faith which you now profess. And this is why I think, you know, often you think about the history of the church. The church was in a very tiny minority, and in, in the centuries it became more and more the majority, such that it became indistinguishable, didn't it? Certainly in the Western world, that, that to just be British or to be Western was also to be Christian, and the two things began to be merged together in a way that has created all kinds of complications in our day and age, as the two things are now being wrenched apart. And there's increasing distance and increasing hostility and increasing difficulty for the church within a majority culture that in many ways um, doesn't understand and, and even worse would scorn or mock the faith that we believe. And Christians, in a reaction to this distance, have, have, have tried to bridge that gap. How have they done it? Well, one of the ways is by, by trying to, to keep up with culture trying to change some of the things we believe so as to more and more conform to the world and the direction the world is going because they reason, well, you know, why would we hang on to these ancient beliefs when they're so countercultural? Won't this just mean that the church will die? And of course, look, right from the outside, we've got to acknowledge that's a profound misunderstanding of what it means to be a Christian and what the church's role is within society. A church which just tries to keep up with the culture becomes irrelevant in a generation. It's one of the reasons why so many churches have died. They tried to conform the message of the gospel and take away its difficult aspects and its difficult teachings and make the church more like the world around it. And what happened was it just got absorbed into the world, disappeared, became useless, became a, a mere appendage. But where Christians understand their distinction, their difference, 
they survive. That's why Peter opens his letter and calls us exiles. He was modeling this concept upon his own people group, the Jewish people. He calls the Christians the elect dispersion or diaspora. And the original diaspora was the Jewish people who'd been scattered across the known world in the Greek Empire, the Persian Empire, the Roman Empire. And somehow they'd managed to walk that tightrope between, on the one hand, um, being great citizens within the worlds in which they lived, but on the other hand, maintaining their difference. And now Peter says, listen, this is the model. As Christians, you've got to be elect exiles. You need to know how to be the dispersion, the diaspora within the world that is hostile to you. So the question that I want us to wrestle with today is, how can the church survive when the world hates it? When there's so much resistance and it's a hostile environment? And friends, this is, this is an, an incredibly pertinent question. Because if we spend even a moment thinking about it, you recognize the truth that Many churches do not survive, and many individual Christians do not survive. You all will know people who at one point said they were a believer in Jesus and have walked away. It's been one of the greatest sadnesses of my life to see that as a pastor. And even before that, I remember when I was at school age, all the lads around me you know, were... were were believers in Jesus, it would seem. Then around age 16, probably 80% of my, my, my friends walked away from God. You know, it really cut me to the heart, made me feel lonely. And you know this to be true. We see it all around us. That said, the global church did not die. In fact, the churches to which Peter wrote survived, but also began to thrive within this hostile world. If anything, things got worse for them after Peter wrote this letter. He wrote this in the early 60s, towards the mid-60s, and later on, there were deliberate campaigns to kill and destroy the church coming from the government, coming from the empire. Things got much, much worse. And what happened to the church? It didn't just survive, it actually began to thrive and spread and grow, even against all odds. And my question, the question I want us to wrestle with them is, how does that happen? How do you personally survive as a Christian within this environment? How can a church like ours not just survive, but also thrive and make an impact beyond its own walls into the city in which we live? This is what we need to wrestle with. I think that the church... And I think what Peter's expectation is, is that the church should have a deep confidence that we're not so much in retreat, but rather we have a, we have a confident face to the world. Jesus, Jesus, you know, he talked about on the one hand, the fact that you're going to suffer because you follow me, he said. And I, I've been misunderstood and I've been, I've been spoken evil of and all kinds of things are said about me. He said, that's going to happen to you too. But he also said on the other hand, this church, the church which I'm beginning, which was just in seed form when he spoke the words, he said, this is going to be the biggest thing in the world. Jesus saw no contradiction between those facts. And so I don't think we should see hostility as a reason to despair or a reason to be coward in any way. In fact, I think if you give this a moment's thought, you realize that 
the world's a broken place, isn't it? And we know that as the church of Jesus Christ, we have something that the world needs. We have hope. We have the possibility of redemption. We have the possibility of grace, of love, and of all the things that are on offer within the church. And not only that, not just, is it just the case that the world needs it? I've, my experience has been that people often admire and desire what we have. I've had countless conversations over the years with people who are not believers, and this may describe you, who have looked in at the faith that we have, at the life of the church, the, the, the comfort that we've had as a couple through suffering, for example, and the friendship and support of the body of the church, or whatever it is. And they've looked in and said, I, I admire that. I even want that. But so, oft, so rarely does that translate into a decision or a commitment to follow Jesus, does it? But I think we can have a confidence. We don't only have what the world needs, we have what the world wants. And so Peter provokes the Christians. He says, yes, you'll suffer. Yes, you'll be rejected. Yes, you'll be mocked. But the church will flourish. One of the greatest examples of this, you know, it was a great privilege uh, to b- baptize a brother from mainland China a couple of weeks ago, wasn't it? And this has been the story of the church in China. 1949, four million Christians in China, predominantly uh, with a heavy influence of missionary activity. And then the law changed, the government changed, everything changed. The missionaries fled, and the church was expected to die. But in recent, by recent counts, there are at least 67 million Christians in, in mainland China. Some people estimate up to 100 million, which would make it almost 10% of the population. How did that happen in a hostile environment? This is what I want us to re- 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 um, think about and reckon with. How do we have resilience? How do we have re- resistance as exiles? And I want to show you three things about what Peter says to this church, which was equipping them for that kind of experience. Here's the first. The church survives through the supernatural love towards one another. Supernatural loving. The church is stronger because of the the power of unity and of the love that exists within the the community. Now, uh, let's approach it like this. What is the greatest threat, do you think, to the church's existence? Having just described to you the hostility of the world around Uh, And certainly that's even worse in other parts of the world. You might be forgiven for thinking that it's the hostility outside the church which is the greatest threat to the church. I think you're wrong. I think the greatest threat to the church is and has always been the danger that the church will eat, consume itself in division. Paul talked about it in Galatians 5. He says, if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Even then, even back then, the greatest threat to the church was always division within the church. And within a church family such as ours, when division creeps in, when hurt and and all these kinds of things creep in, that's when we're most in danger. Why is that the case? Well, it's obviously because we're sinners in close proximity to one another. And unfortunately, the reality is that we're going to irritate each other. We're going to offend each other. The closer you are into the church family, the more likely you are that someone is going to rub you up the wrong way, that someone's going to say something, do something that you do not like. 
the people who are giggling at the front row know it because we've been involved with church the longest, and um, that's why they're on the front row. It's the keynotes. And um, just kidding, by the way. Um, but think about this. Think like every story you've ever read about a beleaguered minority, every film you've ever watched. What happens? What's the danger? It's that they turn on each other. You think about the Fellowship of the Ring. The nine of them set out on the path to Mordor. What happens? The dwarf and the elf don't get along to begin with. And then Boromir tries to take the ring, and the whole fellowship is, is broken at that point. Of course, this is the, ex- the existence of the church within a hostile world. It's most, the, most, the greatest threat is always that the church consumes itself, that it eats itself to death. Now, this is why right from the outset of the birth of the church, unity was always one of the highest priorities. This is why Peter says here, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling and so on. Do you know the night before Jesus died was executed. One of the most precious and holy moments in all the scripture is the record of his prayer, his high priestly prayer in John 17. I love that chapter because his impending death focused and, you know, it focuses the mind. As he is praying this prayer, he's praying about his absolute deepest concerns and passions for the new movement that he'd begun. What does Jesus pray for in the high priestly prayer? One of the themes that keeps on coming up and emerging through that is the unity of his body. He prays that they may be one, just as you, and are, you, are you Father, and are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me, that the glory you've given me I've given to them, and that they may be one even as we are one. In other words, I don't, think, I don't think it's stating it too strongly to say that Jesus died for the unity of the church. He died to take seemingly random people from all over the world and form them into this new family that is the church. The Holy Spirit did this work in a dynamic way at the birth of the church just after Pentecost. So Jesus has ascended to heaven The Holy Spirit fell upon the church, the early church, when there were just 120 of them. And the church began to expand rapidly in size. It grew almost 30-fold overnight. And uh, one of the things that Luke noticed or writes, records about the church was how how much of a oneness they experienced, a miraculous oneness. He says the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. There was a sense in which their commitment, their passionate commitment to one another was an extraordinary thing to to behold. Now, we tasted little bits of this in our church. You know, I didn't know 99% of the people in our church before we started it five years ago. And now we're a family. And you people, some of you are new today. You stick with us, you'll experience what it's like to be part of family. Now what does this mean for you? Think again. We're talking about 
why this is so vital in a hostile world. And this is what I think it means for you personally. A couple of things. One is this. You as a Christian need to be able to say, these people are my people. Being in exile means that a, change, a deep, deep change of mindset. It doesn't mean that you're merely committed to the idea of a church. It means that you personally are committed to a church in a very personal and costly way. It means that it demands an amount of your time. It means it demands an amount of your personal sacrifice and relationships and love and commitment to other people. People who you may not naturally click with or get along with. It's been an extraordinary thing to me when we led life groups over the years, and we've had many different groups in the, all the years we've been leading, but you know, we, often we started the academic year with a new group and a random collection of people in a room who have no natural affinity to one another, and within a couple of months, there is deep affection. It's a beautiful thing to watch. And I want to encourage you, this means, listen, I know for some of you this is already true. I'm really speaking to those of you who are on the edge, and you know you're on the edge, and you feel you're on the edge. You need to be able to say, these people are my people. There's a sense in which the church of God should trump every other identity that you hold, be it a racial identity or an interest group or a career or your friendship group. All those other things are not unimportant, and they're not disregarded. But the church takes primary place. Is that true of you? Could you say, the church family is my family? Friend, I want to encourage you to give yourself to that. Another thing I'll say is this, that the closer you move in, what Peter shows us is the closer you move in to the heart of this community, the more grace from God you need in order to do church well. Because Peter calls us to the very highest standards of love here. He doesn't want the Christians to be getting away with backbiting and gossip and, uh, you know, having, you know, the guy who, who sits on that side of the room because they don't get along with the person who sits on that side of the room, or you go to a, an evening service because you got not getting along with someone who was in the morning service, or whatever it is, he says that stuff does not belong in the church. Peter calls us to the highest possible standards of love. All of you have unity of mind, sympathy. You know, when someone's hurting, you, you care, you feel it deeply. Brotherly love. I always find that an interesting expression because I know with two brothers, brotherly love. What's brotherly love? Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes it's sitting on one another and pummeling each other. But anyway, um, even to this day, I know. When I see my older brother at Christmas, he's going to sit on me. I know it's going to happen. Um, a tender heart, he says, a humble mind. This is not, you know, this is not. This is a miraculous and supernatural thing, friends. We need the grace of God. The more you move into the heart of church community, the more you need the Holy Spirit to help you. You really do. And uh, because it, it's, it moves from theory to practice. It moves from, I love the idea of that. That's a beautiful thing. To, I actually have to go and confront that person or forgive that person or say sorry for this thing that I've done. I have to move towards that pain that my brother or sister is experiencing, as awkward as that may feel. And I want to give one final note on this point before we move on. The reason why I put this within the context of resistance, you know, of what the face that we show to the world, 
is because this is, what, this is how Peter's thinking. This is what is energizing Peter to write to the church in this way. Remember, he's thinking of that interface between the church and the world. And this is why he's prioritizing unity. Because you think about it, unity is powerful both defensively and offensively. Use a couple of analogies here just to get, so you get what I mean. Think about sports teams. When you're a kid, this was true of my, uh, you know, my footballing days ended very soon. But when I was a child playing football on the pitch in primary school, the ball went over there and all 22 children followed the ball. And then the ball went over there and we all ran like ducklings, you know, following the ball around the pitch. And because there was no real, you know, it was just everyone playing for themselves, basically. And of course, the more uh, you develop an understanding of how team sports work, the more you realize that a beautiful unity within a team will create a strength that, is, that, that, that aids you defensively, but also offensively. I think also in military terms. One of the, um, you know, how did ancient battles used to play out with a whole crowd on that side, a whole crowd on that side, and they just run at each other and everyone does their own thing. It's just a great melee on a field. And uh, whoever has the most and best fighters wins, basically. Of course, the Romans changed all that. They introduced the phalanx and the units of soldiers who could form different formations, triangles, squares, circles, whatever it's needed. They could lock shields. They could create like a turtle shape. It was incredible. And as a result, a minority of soldiers was almost impregnable both defensively and also offensively, and so they they were able to take over the whole world. And there's a sense in which this is what the church is like. The more that we love one another the stronger the church becomes. And now this is counterintuitive because you think the strength of the church is our ability to love the world out there. In other words, the more social engagement we do and things like that, the, the more we grow. And I actually think the New Testament shows us a slightly different model. It's not that those things are wrong, but what it shows us is that the more we love each other within the body of Christ, the more powerful the church grows. It's a beautiful and counterintuitive thing. One of the reasons why I'm so confident about that fact is because Jesus said it. He said, a new commandment I give to you. He's speaking to this small band of disciples, his his 12 men. He says, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. And then listen to this. He says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This has been the amazing story of the church, that as a church has called people from the world into this exile community and formed a new community of love, a family in which we are devoted to each other above all, there is a compelling attractiveness to the life of the church. And people say, they must be followers of Jesus. Because what's happening in there can't be explained except by the work of God. The supernatural loving. Let me show you a second feature. It's gracious suffering. Gracious suffering. Where did you, and speaking specifically to the Christians at this moment, where did you last experience suffering as a Christian? When did that happen? There's suffering in life that we encounter because of our humanity. I'm talking about sickness. I'm talking about not having enough money. I'm talking about all kinds of things. But there's also suffering you experience because of your Christianity. And Peter's interested in that. He assumes it all the way through the letter. But look at verse 14. He says, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. In the New Testament, 
this reality of suffering because you are a Christian is held, if I can put it as strongly as this, held as a badge of honor. I want you to think about that for a second. In chapter 2, 19, Peter said, This is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. You think, how could that be a gracious thing? To suffer for your faith. Peter says that it is a gracious thing. He says that again in chapter 4, in verse 14. He says, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. By the way, I, I don't, this is not stuff that Peter's making up. He, he remembers vividly the day when Jesus sat down on the hillside and taught thousands of people in the Sermon on the Mount. And one of his, the first things he said was he said, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my, my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In other words, this is a mark of your faithfulness. This is a mark of your zeal, your passion for the Lord. This is a mark of your willingness to wear your faith in public and not be ashamed of Christ. There's a challenge, isn't there? When did you last suffer for being a Christian? I want us to think about the importance of suffering then. Why is it so potent to a watching world when they see Christians suffer on account of the name of Jesus? Why, why is that such a powerful thing? Why is it part of our resistance? Many, uh, many people who have opposed the church through history have thought that the church could be beaten to death. Here's this movement. We can't control it because they profess allegiance to another empire, to the Lord Jesus Christ. We can't control it, so what are we going to do? We're going to try and beat it to death. And that's happened time and time again in nation after nation. I know sometimes that's hard to believe because you see Christianity is a dominant force in the Western world. But trust me, it's just because you, you haven't met enough Christians yet or enough Christians from around the world or read enough history yet to know the true story of the church. The opposite has proved to be true, though, that rather than beating the church to death, the more the church has been beaten, the more it has flourished and thrived in amazing ways. And again, this is a counterintuitive reality. How is that possible? How is it that you can afflict this people and they get stronger? Why does that happen? What's the dynamic that's at work there? It was one of the early church fathers um, called Tertullian who phrased it so perfectly when he said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. I think of it like a dandelion. I remember sitting in a field with my dad when, when we went on a bike ride when I was probably about 11 or 12. And we sat down for a rest in the sunshine and I picked up a dandelion and blew the head off the dandelion. And he said, now go and catch those seeds and gather them back up. And he was in true pastor mode teaching me a lesson. Um, sometimes the things you try and destroy, you actually propagate. You see this pattern in the book of Acts, when in Acts 8, we learn that you know, Paul had just 
been present, or Saul, as he was also known, had just been present at the death of the first martyr in the Christian church, the amazing man Stephen. And it says he was there giving approval to his death. And so the church began to dissipate from Jerusalem. They began to spread. They began to run away because they're terrified. And what happens? Wherever they go, they can't stop talking about Jesus. And so one church becomes dozens of churches. It's like the harder you try and crush this thing, the more it spreads because basically the gospel that we believe can't so easily be squashed. It's in us. It is us. We embody it. You can't separate it from us. You can't kill the church. When in the 1500s, there were these great wranglings going back and forth around Protestantism and Catholicism where the gospel had really died within the Catholic church and been warped and distorted into something different. And these new preachers had discovered the gospel because they read the Bible again. And there was the going back and forth in Britain. You know, we had Edward VI, and then we had bloody Queen Mary tried to stamp out the Protestant church within the UK or in England. And some of the older guys who'd been around for some decades by that point and were famous preachers, three of them from Oxford, were Thomas Cranmer, Hugh Latimer and his colleague Ridley. And when they were put on trial for the things they believe, Latimer was so old, he had to correspond by writing. He he couldn't enter into debate verbally. And unfortunately, from one perspective, they were sentenced to death, but he actually counted it a privilege. So Latimer and Ridley were tied together and put in the middle of a bonfire in the streets of Oxford so that they would be burned to death. And as the flames began to lick up around their feet, Latimer is said to have uttered to Ridley, who was behind him, he said, play the man, Master Ridley. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. And so it proved to be true. Their death the deaths of men like them, was a seed of a great movement of God that began in the next century throughout the nation. A Christian's willingness to suffer is a testament, therefore, to the reality of your faith, to the authenticity of your trust in Jesus Christ as Lord. And I think that's what Peter's saying. Verse 16 He says, having a good conscience, he's talking about the context of suffering, that you answer them, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. You know, people look at you and they realize, no, this this faith is real. And they feel ashamed for the way that they're treating the church. Let me just ask you quickly, how can we embrace that kind of suffering? How do you endure that kind of suffering? How do you maintain an authentic faith in the world that hates hates what we believe? And it's not through some kind of warped pleasure in suffering. You know, we're not sadomasochists and all the rest of it. There's nothing weird about this. What it is simply, if you can think of it like this, the reason why Christians are willing to suffer and even enter it joyfully is rather because it's a reflection of what you love. If you love the world the most, more than you should, then 
your greatest concern will always be success and achievement within the world, acceptance and inclusion within the world, so that you will not want to ruffle feathers. You will not want to appear to be different because it could, it could lead to you being excluded, pushed back, held down. If you love the world too much, your, your Christian faith will be so internalized that it will be hidden, be invisible. But if you love Jesus, then you will embrace whatever suffering is necessary if you can be faithful to him. You'll think it's worth it. You'll think it's worth it. I love how this is put by one of the, um, I was reading a commentator on this, and he, he put it like this. He set up this contrast. He says, the Christian is the man to whom God and Jesus Christ are the supremacies in life. Now, if a man's heart is set on earthly things, on earthly possessions, on earthly happiness, on earthly pleasures, on earthly ease and comfort, he is of all men most vulnerable. That's when you're showing your soft underbelly, in other words, because you, you're too attached to this world. He says, in the nature of things, he may lose these things at any moment. They may come at any time, a reversal of fortune, and he may find himself stripped of them all. On the other hand, he says, if a man gives to Jesus Christ the unique place in his life, if the most precious thing for him is his relationship to God, that is something which can never be taken from him. No experience can despoil him of it. Nothing can take it from him. I think that's really the, that's really the dividing line. A Christian who is willing to suffer is a Christian who just loves Jesus too much to ever turn their back on him. This is why Paul was able to say in Philippians 3, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul didn't care what he lost in this life because he'd gained something much greater when he'd gained Jesus. And this is how the church survives in exile. In fact, suffering is the very thing which exposes whether the church is truly committed to Jesus or not. I think there are many thousands of churches in this land which, when the heat is turned up, will disappear and vanish. Because the, the, the real central allegiance of, of hearts is not Jesus Christ. Church is a convenience, or it's a club, or it's something else, but it's not... It's not a life and death. I believe in Jesus above all. And friends, therefore the spotlight is turned on your heart. Can you survive in exile? The Christian church is stronger when it can suffer with grace because, as Peter said, we have a, an inheritance that's unfailed and undefiled, and unperishable, kept in heaven for us. We have Christ. Let me say you want, tell you one last thing. The church is able to be resistant in exile, not just through our unity, not just through our ability to suffer, but also through our robust thinking. Now, this may surprise you, but this is what Peter talks about. He hones in on the absolutely crucial distinctive that determines whether your faith can survive in exile. Now, I want you to think about this just in terms of Peter's own experiences. At one time, Peter himself had a faith that could not survive. 
He'd been with Jesus. They'd experienced the popularity of the crowds on Jesus' traveling ministry. And then everything began to change. And when he went into Jerusalem, went into Jerusalem on, on, a, on, on in the festival day, Jesus has cheered and everything was wonderful. A week later, they go into Jerusalem. Jesus is arrested and he's on trial. The crowd had turned. Or it was a different crowd. Who knows what was going on? And then Peter suddenly feels the pain of exile. And when Jesus is on trial in the high priest's house, what happens? Peter's outside, sort of giving furtive glances, trying to figure out what's going on without being too obviously connected with Jesus. Like, just, I'm just here, just hanging out, guys. And he's warming his hands by the fire. And he's, he's desperately trying to figure out what's happening with Jesus, but not appear to be with him at the same time. And one of the, the servant girls says, hey, you're with him. He says, woman, I don't know what you're talking about. Carries on warming his hands. Another guy says, yes, you are. You're one of them, aren't you? He says, man, I don't know what you're talking about. An hour passes, and he's just sort of warming his hands. You think, he's, he's caught in a moment there. Do I walk away? Am I going to be discovered? Did they believe me? Someone asks him again, and he denies Jesus again. Then he hears the rooster crow three times, and he remembers what Jesus said. Jesus said, you'll, you'll deny me three times. He asks the question, why did Peter deny Jesus? And I think at least part of the answer is because there's Jesus being beaten and suffering in the next room and suffering defeat, it would seem, So everything Jesus had said about the glory of the church that he was starting seemed to have been untrue in that moment. He had these doubts. He didn't know. I mean, he was the one who called Jesus Christ the Messiah. And now he's like, well, how can that be possible? Jesus is about to be put on trial for death. And in that moment, he he didn't know the whole story. But everything changes for Peter. So at that moment, he's basically an invertebrate, isn't he? You think about a jellyfish. There's life in a jellyfish, but there's no resistance. You you push against it and the whole thing goes flat or squashed. That was Peter's faith at that moment. He, He had no backbone. He was an invertebrate. And I think that's true of many Christians. A lot of people who profess to follow Jesus, as soon as as soon as resistance comes, as soon as the crushing blows come, prove to be invertebrates, jellyfish. And listen, friends, I want to stress for you, it's not enough that you love the community of the church. It's a wonderful thing when you do. It's not enough. It won't sustain you. to just Because as soon as it gets painful, you'll be like, this is too much. I've got to walk away. It's not enough that you have experienced some kind of transcendence in life that's made you think, wow, this is wonderful. I love the spirituality. I love the experience. I love what, what I feel like when I come to church. That won't, that won't sustain you when you have to suffer for the name. It's not enough that you admire Christian morality, as many do. They say, I'm Christian because I believe this is the right way to live. Christ's way is best. It's not enough, by the way, when you, when you have to suffer for it. You ask, how does somebody have that backbone that enables them to have resistance in exile? And I think the answer that, that Peter tells us is it's about your substance. It's about your conviction. It's about the beliefs that are most core to you. This is why when Peter's 
talking to these believers about this experience of suffering. He says, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, in verse 14, you'll be blessed. Have no fear of them, he says, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. You're ready. They press you, they question you, they ask you, you know what you believe. You know what you believe. The word he uses there is is an apologia, which we get the word apologetics from it, a defense. It was used in a court of law. I've been in a court of law on various occasions, twice on a jury and once when I was being accused of reckless driving, which won't surprise some of you. But I was... (laughs) I was, I was reversing at two miles per hour, so I can't really, I don't see that as reckless, but anyway. Um, and the lawyer came prepared. My lawyer, paid for by my insurance company. I was so proud of them. I was like, yeah, these are my guys. He came with a massive folder, and he'd studied the case, and he knew how to run circles around the accusers, and so we won. It was an amazing feeling. But he had this defense prepared, an apologia. And Peter's saying to the Christians, be prepared. Know what you believe. Know why you believe it. Have your reasons ready. Which is why I think that whole last section of that chapter is Peter rehearsing the gospel. Christ suffered, he says, once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous. That he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And he just rehearses the whole, encounter, the whole thing that Peter had witnessed. Jesus on trial. I denied him. Then he was crucified. Then he rose from the dead. Then he ascended to the Father's right hand. And through all of that, Peter now has an unshakable faith. Which is why on the day of Pentecost, when he's facing the Jerusalem crowd again, he can turn to them as a preacher and say, You crucified this man and now he's raised from the dead. He's the Lord of glory. Peter was transformed because he then had backbone. He had conviction. He had a reason for the hope that was in him. He had a defense. I worry about the church sometimes. I don't just mean our church. I mean the church in the West. Because I think so many Christians are deeply unthinking people. We need answers. We're being pressed and questioned more severely than we've encountered for a long time. You need to get ready, friends, because the answers are there. And what Peter's urging upon Christians is to have a deep certainty about the things you believe. I know that certainty is considered to be an ugly thing in our day and age. People see you being too certain, they think you're arrogant, they think you're judgy, they think you're rude, they think you're intolerant. But of course, none of that's true. There's a lot of things in life we're certain about. And the reason why you become certain as a Christian is because it's based on historical facts. Jesus Christ really did die. He really did uh, get raised from the dead. And there were eyewitnesses. Being certain about that is not an arrogant thing. Not in the slightest. No more certain than believing that Julius Caesar existed. But Peter... Lest we are accused of that arrogance, he tells us how to do it. He says, do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience. So that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Friend, are you able to stand up for the things you believe? 
It seems to me that the more confident you become, the more gracious you can be. Because you just feel a peace in every situation. There's no question that you can be asked that's going to rock your faith to the core. There's no slander that's going to stick. You know what you believe. You know why you believe it. And there's a calmness and a certainty and a grace that's given by God in those moments to say, this is why I'm a Christian. Friend, I've been describing, you know, if you think of the negative of the points of race, any one of these could be true of you, make you vulnerable as a Christian. Maybe you're isolated. You'll be picked off. Like lions pick off the, the one that's on the outside of the pack. Maybe you're... Maybe you're um, too sensitive to suffering because you love this world too much. It makes you vulnerable. Will you be faithful to Jesus? Maybe you just don't know what you believe or why you believe it. Peter wants Christians who are robust, who are resistant, who are able to stand up. And with such people, God changes the world. Living in exile will either make you weaker or it will make you much, much stronger as a Christian. My prayer for our church is that we are going to be distinctive and powerful as a result. Amen? Why don't we just pray for those things right now? Why don't you bow your head? If you share with me the desire that we don't just survive in this culture, but that our church and the churches around us would thrive because we have what this world needs, because we have what this world wants even. If you share with me that desire, let's pray to God now for that. Father, we thank you that in Christ you've given us a gospel which is life and hope. Lord, I want to pray that each of these realities we've been studying will become true of this congregation. I pray, Father, that this congregation will be a beautifully united, loving family. I pray that those who feel they're on the outside or on the edge will quickly find their way to the heart of things. Give grace for that, Lord. We know it's a work of the Spirit. I pray, Lord, that you will help us to love the name of Jesus above all things in this life so that our willingness to suffer and our ability to endure suffering will grow Because nothing can shake us. And I ask, Lord God, that we would become thinking people. Not arrogantly so, but in a way that humbles our minds to the word of God. And says, Lord Jesus, you testified. Your word testifies that these things happened about you. Lord, let my convictions run deep and run strong. Give us backbone, we pray. In the holy name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.